Well, I'll tell you, the, the thrift stores never saw it coming. All over the country. Uh, Ravenswood Used Bookstore in Chicago said it received a month's worth of donations in two days. Beacon's Closet in New York City said it usually doesn't get a lot of donations in January because uh, the weather is bad or people that time of year, they don't really uh, bother with such things. But in 2019, it was different. The manager uh, told the news outlet, it is really hard to estimate the amount, but it has been a ton of stuff, thousands of pieces a day. Goodwill stores in Washington, D.C. said donations were up 66% this year over last year. One location alone saw a 372% increase in donations. A Goodwill store worker from Florida said thousands and hundreds of thousands of donations. It's huge. We can hardly keep up with it. In photos circulating around the internet, people lining up cars to drop off donations. This has all been attributed to one thing, the KonMari method, devised by Japanese author and organizing consultant Marie Kondo. Uh, just a quick show of hands, anybody familiar or have even heard of this KonMari method? Okay, for the rest of you, um, her books and methods have been around for probably about five years now, but in January, Netflix released uh, this series tidying up with Marie Kondo. And so by uh, web searches and hashtags and all the metrics, views of the videos, uh, this has gone viral through the roof. And thrift stores have been overwhelmed as people who have been watching this series bring their stuff uh, to give it away. They're swamped. There was a reporter in New York City who went to a uh, they, they, they went, went to a thrift store where people were lined up with huge bags to give their stuff away. And the reporter went down the line and asked every person, are you here because of the show? 90% of the people said, absolutely. I saw the show and I immediately felt moved to get rid of my belongings. And this is how the method works. You declutter your, your house. You take all your stuff in one category, like your clothes or your books or your papers or whatever it is. One category at a time, and you pile it up. So let's say your t-shirts. You take all your t-shirts, you pile it up, you pick it up, and you look at it. And if it sparks joy for you, you keep it. You keep it by folding it, by a special method of folding it, and putting it in its proper place, which is a whole other part of the system. If it does not spark joy for you, you thank it. <laughs> for serving its purpose and you throw it out. Now what I will say here, clearly, clearly, Marie Kondo has struck a nerve for Americans. We have a problem with our stuff, with our wealth, with our consumerism and our possessions. It is a real, it, it is a spiritual problem. I think she has some spiritual issues too, but we're going <laughs> to focus on our problems today. Um, there does come a point where you look at your stuff and you realize that you have way more than you would ever need. And you, your stuff becomes more of a burden to your life than a blessing in your life. And, and you just need to give it away or just trash it. And it's very freeing when we do this. And this is part of why Kondo's method, this KonMari method, is so popular. And in our text today... 
Jesus encounters a man, a wealthy young man, who needed badly to be freed from his possessions. And so that he could experience this life that Jesus came to bring him, to bring him eternal and abundant life. But this young man was unable to understand what true wealth was really about. So uh, my prayer for us is that we today would understand what true wealth really is and where it comes from. Let us pray. Father God, we believe that only you can change a heart. We boldly ask that you, it would be your good pleasure this morning to change my heart, to change all of our hearts, to know you more, to be obedient to your way, to trust you in all things. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to take a look at three things that uh, Jesus teaches us about true wealth. And the first thing is this. He teaches us the worthlessness of of religion, the worthlessness of religion. So this man, he was a, uh, a ruler, so he was an important person. From the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that he was also a young ruler, young and successful, and he goes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you need to follow God's commandments. You've got to follow God's law. And he starts listing off some commandments. Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. He's giving a little sampling of the Ten Commandments here. And uh, the response of this young man, he says, I've, I've kept all these things since I was a boy. Yet, there was something missing for him. And this young, wealthy man knew it. He knew that there was something more because he's... he's He's successful, he's been very moral in his life, and yet he knew something was missing such that he had to go to Jesus and ask him, what more is, what more is there for me to do that I might know that I've experienced or somehow attained eternal life? And Jesus is reminding him, and he's reminding us, and this man already, I think, seems to realize that just following religious rules is not the answer. It's actually worthless in this pursuit of eternal life. It has no value in itself. Jesus described it like this. He said he came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. But he was like this good shepherd. And we are as his sheep. And we follow him in relationship. We recognize his voice. We obey his voice. We trust him. So obedience is essential in this eternal and abundant life that Jesus came to bring. Obedience is essential, but it's not mindless obedience. It's not just rigid rule following. It's about a, a relationship of love. And again, God's law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, all of it was an opportunity for God's people to trust God, to obey Him, to know His goodness through the law. But it turns, it so quickly turns into just rigid, just following the rules, going through the motions. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus quoted the, that prophet to the people at a time when, again, they were just going through the religious motions, but their heart, in, in the religious activity, you can lose God. And, and this man says, No, I've kept the law. So maybe in kind of a correctness, a mechanical correctly, maybe he did not 
regularly violate you know, God's laws. But it's sort of, think of it like a musician. And you've got a sheet of music, and you can play every note right on time, right through the, the score of the music. But is that beautiful? There's, there's more to it than just mechanically playing each note, and musicians know that. You, there's, there's more putting your heart into it, where it comes alive. And this rigid mechanical just going through the motions, many people have been raised that way. I've, I've talked to a number of you who say, look, I grew up, we, would, we had to do these certain things on these certain days. I didn't understand any of it. It didn't draw me any closer to God. You know, we're talking about the season of Lent. Yeah, we eat fish on Fridays. Why? I have no idea. Shut up and eat your fish and chips. All right, I guess I'm honoring Jesus. You know, but it doesn't, these rituals don't in themselves draw us closer to Jesus necessarily if we miss the relationship. So there's a worthlessness to religion. That's the first thing Jesus teaches about true wealth. The second thing he teaches is the immense cost of discipleship. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. That is a huge cost. That is an immense cost to follow Jesus. But notice that this is also a very personal thing. A number of weeks ago, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and we, we uh, came to that account where Jesus healed the, he healed the man who had been struggling with the demons. And you remember at the end of that account, this man was healed, and he said, Jesus, I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to follow you everywhere you go. And Jesus said to him, no, you need to stay home. Now we have this man who Jesus approaches and says, actually, what you need to do is leave your stuff and follow me. It's just the opposite. You see how very personal this is. But Jesus knew something. There was something unique about this man and his wealth that Jesus was calling him to confront. Because there's nothing, it's not, it, it's being wealthy is not a sin. In, in the New Testament, followers of Jesus Christ, were, there were some wealthy followers, uh, business owners, property owners. This is not a sin. But it is a danger. As one commentator said, it is not a sin to have great wealth, but it is a danger to the soul and a great responsibility. The problem wasn't that he possessed riches. The problem was that his riches possessed him. Jesus isn't trying to make this man miserable. He's not trying to make him poor. He's trying to make him free. Jesus loved this man. The Gospel of Mark, in the same account, says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mark 10, 21. His sin wasn't his wealth. His sin was his connection to his wealth. His connection to his possessions. And Jesus wanted him to be able to turn from this thing that had him trapped. But what happens? Verse 23, take a look. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of Wealth, to Jesus, is a major barrier to entering God's kingdom. Wealth can be a huge hindrance to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, that, that's a very hard statement. And if people have tried to soften it, there's different explanations. Uh, some would say, well, actually, what Jesus is saying, so a camel going through the eye of the needle, actually, on the city wall, when the gates were closed, there was these really tiny gates that you could pass through for commerce, but not an army couldn't come and attack the city. So it was this tiny little gate. And if you had a camel that was loaded, you know, you'd have to unload the camel, and the camel would have to scrunch down and fit through this little gate. And it's very difficult. The, the problem is there's no historical evidence that that type of a gate was ever called the eye of a needle. See, it, it, I see it as an attempt to just soften what Jesus is saying here. The other explanation <clears throat> that I've heard is that the word for camel in Greek, which this was written in, is very, very close to the word for rope or twine. So what Jesus was saying is, is like, if you're really wealthy, it's like trying to put twine through the eye of a needle, which is very difficult, but... You know, you kind of, you work it, you can maybe get it through. We're better off uh, accepting what this says. It's a figure of speech. I mean, Jesus, he told them, what was it, last week, two weeks ago, that they were swallowing a whole camel. I mean, this is, Jesus likes to talk in this big language. And look at the response in verse 26. They said, then who can be saved? If Jesus is saying, well, it's kind of difficult, you're saying it's impossible. Who can be saved? And Jesus confirms for us he means to say it's impossible because he says in verse 27, take a look, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Apart from God's work, those who are wealthy will never be able to overcome it. And, and, but those who, you know, when God changes a heart, you know, you can overcome what is nearly otherwise impossible. But why wealth? And why is Jesus... Isn't there a lot of sins and a lot of temptations in our lives that could keep us from God, that could hinder us, that could become a stumbling block? And, and I would say, yeah, absolutely, there's a ton of things. But they all boil down to one thing, and that's self-reliance. We can either rely on ourselves or we can rely on God. That is our only options. You can't do both. And worldly wealth has this unique power, uniquely helps us to feel self-reliant. Um, but we can't be self-reliant. We need God. Jesus said, apart from me, he said, with me, you're going to bear a lot of fruit in your life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Money is truly unique, and everybody feels the pressure of money. Everybody. That's a sweeping statement, but I hold to it. If you, if you are poor, money is a major issue because you don't have it. Those who are wealthy also feel the pressure of money because if they're paying attention, it's the responsibility of stewarding wealth is a great pressure. Or maintaining wealth or an estate. Or, you know, if you stop and you get to know people and you talk to them, I would say everybody feels this pressure of money and wealth. Whether you have it or you don't have it. And money uniquely can lead us to self-reliance. And you see it in this young man's question. He says, what must I do? What more must I accomplish? Right? He's got the material wealth. He's got the moral compass. He's following the commands. You know, what else? Hey, I've, I've achieved. I'm a ruler. I've got wealth. I've got morality. What else can I do that I can achieve? And you can hear it in his question that he, his focus is something that he can do. And Jesus said, it's not something you can do. And your wealth is only reinforcing that you think you can do it. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they will, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
And it's really hard to be poor in spirit when you're rich in everything else. It can make us blind to the way of Jesus. And so Jesus gives him, this is the beautiful thing, Jesus gives him an alternative vision. He said, this is what it could look like for you. Uh, just g give it all away and follow me. Trade your relationship to your stuff and your wealth and trade that for a relationship with me and I'll show you eternal life. And then the man will be totally free to rely on Jesus alone. And see, you don't have to be wealthy to be attached to your stuff, to your possessions, to, to material things and, and to feel reliant on those. And it's very... Um, so, so here's my confession so I live, I live in the parsonage over on High Street, and uh, it's a lovely, well-maintained house. It is just jam-full of junk right now. I was in the attic the other day, and I was looking for something, and I was just so ashamed. And I'm, you know, considering God's word, I'm like, this is terrible. I have way too much junk. Been there for six years, completely crammed the attic, completely crammed the basement. Um, this is terrible. And... That's why this way of life that Jesus describes to this man is refreshingly attractive. That's why the Kanmari method is people are latching onto this. It's very refreshing. But the, the cost of discipleship is, is immense. That we have to transfer all of our trust and our stuff and our wealth and we've got to follow Jesus. So the worthlessness of religion, the cost of discipleship, and finally the last thing Jesus teaches us here is that true wealth is that true wealth it comes through faith and obedience. Look at verse 28. Peter says to Jesus, he says, we've left, everything, we've left all we've had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive as many, as many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. We've left everything, Peter says. The Apostle Paul, he said, everything that I used to count to my credit, I count as loss. It's garbage compared to knowing Jesus. Left, just left it all behind. When we detach ourselves from our stuff and our material wealth, our moral wealth, you know, we, when we let go of this self-reliance, we are free to embrace a life of simplicity and generosity and follow Jesus, and then we experience life that is truly life. What do we gain? Again, this isn't just health and wealth and what we sometimes call the prosperity gospel. The idea is that I give and then I get more back. And there's preachers out there, just give a little bit and you're going to get, you know, plant that seed, you're going to get everything back. And um, We don't give so that we get back. That's just selfishness. Some give, uh, some give generously and get very little in return in terms of material wealth in this world. And I always say, if you give $100, you'll have 100 less dollars. <laughs> Every time. But what do we gain? We gain a whole new spiritual family. Whatever you leave behind. The early Christians didn't lack for anything. They always had a home to stay in. They always had enough possessions to share. They had this beautiful family. It's in the protection that comes from that family. And then you have, in the New Testament, you see people of all different classes. You read the New Testament, it's written to slaves and to masters. They're addressed in the same letter because they were in the same churches. They, it didn't, your, your, your wealth didn't matter. And, and they had, the, the early Christian had this radical disconnection from their property. 
to embrace this new way of life in Jesus. What I, what I would otherwise be entitled to, I give up for the sake of my new family. That's how they lived. That's how St. Patrick lived. I don't know if you know much about his story. He didn't send the snakes out of Ireland. They were never, there was not snakes there. Um, and he wasn't Irish. He was a Brit. Um, he was from England. Born in the 4th century. He was a very religious family. His father was a deacon. His grandfather was a priest. Would you say, wait a minute, his grandfather was a priest? Well, the priest, celibacy wasn't a thing for priests then. It was fine for them to have families. Um, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire, which extended um, to the British Isles. And, and, but he, he, as a young man, he didn't care anything. It, he never knew he was a Christian. It was just sort of the routine that, you know, following the rules. And he didn't, it, it meant nothing to him. He had no interest in Christianity. Until he turned about 16 years old, and there was these Irish raiders, these pirates came, and they, uh, they captured him, and they took him into slavery in Ireland. And it was there, he was working as a slave on this sheep ranch where Patrick, where God really got a hold of his heart. And he was praying day and night. He was praying, he said, 100 times a day. And he said, quote, the spirit was burning in him, that God just captured him in his heart in this time. And, and he had a dream that God was leading him to escape and that God had showed him. And so he followed this God's guidance and he went to find a ship and sure enough there was a ship and he was able to escape and go back home to England and his family he reunited with his family and they were excited to be with him and they specifically told him don't do any traveling Patrick because you're home and, and he had been gone for six years and um, it was great to have him back and so some years later Again, at God's prompting, God called him to go back to Ireland to minister to those people. And in his, uh, what's called his confession, it's his autobiography. And it's really short. You could read it, and it's, it's like 20 pages long. It's free online. I encourage you to read it. He shares that he went there in a response to God's call, quote, to, to come to the Irish people to preach the gospel so that I may give up my free birthright for the advantage of others. And he went and he had this amazing, fruitful ministry. He said, if I'm worthy, I am ready also to give up my life. Without hesitation and most willingly for Christ's name, I want to spend myself for that country, even in death, if the Lord should grant me his favor. And that was his posture in going. And it was, he, uh, he knew the people. He knew how they talked. He knew what they valued. He knew how they were organized. And he shared the gospel with them. They were coming to faith. He baptized thousands of people of new converts. But at the end of his life, he wrote this. He said, who am I, who am I, Lord? Or rather, what is my calling that you appeared to me in so great a divine quality that today among the barbarians, I might constantly exalt and magnify your name in whatever place I should be, and not only in good fortune, but even in affliction, so that whatever befalls me, be it good or bad, I should accept it equally and give Thanks always to God. Just completely detached from a life of prosperity, from, from even his, his, his life in itself, to minister to others. He gave it up to follow the call of Jesus, to be a servant and to share God's love with people who had once enslaved him. Gave it all away. And he found that true, abundant, eternal life. Let me close with this. It, 
It's very freeing to uh, separate yourself from your possessions, to simplify, to declutter, to organize and have a method. That's all good. Jesus says that all that stuff, all our possessions, all our wealth, that can be a major hindrance to our faith. Um, it can make it nearly impossible to experience this abundant eternal life. But I want you to know that decluttering, tidying up, giving things away, generosity, uh, it can never save you. Generosity is the gospel, but not your generosity. We always remember that the biggest problem I have is not my wealth. My biggest problem is not my stuff. It's my sin. Now, my, my stuff might be a symptom of that sin in me, but, but sin is a condition of my heart that does not act in faith. Everything where I don't act in faith is sin. And sin is a failure to love God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. No matter what I give away, I, sin is a condition I cannot declutter through any special method. The gospel is not about what I give away, but what Jesus gave away for me. 2 Corinthians 8 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus gave his life that you might live. This rich young ruler in the story, he goes away sad and empty because he was unwilling to part with his wealth. But there's another rich young ruler in this story. It's Jesus, the, the wealthiest, the, uh, the greatest ruler, gave everything. He left all the wealth to, to walk a life of suffering. He gave his life on the cross in your place to purchase you for the joy of bringing you home. We have to let go of our self-reliance. We have to trust what he accomplished on the cross. We have to put our faith in him. There is no hope for us. As long as we are relying on ourselves, there is no hope. Let us pray. Father, we approach your word. We, we, we see the warning here. We hear it. We feel it. And we just confess that there are ways, Lord, that I've been self-reliant. There's ways where I've um, had too much, too much focus on stuff. And Lord, I pray that I would... Be more generous, Lord. I pray that I would um, share more. But Father, I just pray that I would trust you. That I would trust what Jesus Christ has done. That my heart might continue to be transformed. That I would give my life away. I pray that for this church. That we would be a people who give our lives away for your glory and for the sake of your gospel, Lord. May it be today. We pray in Jesus' name.